Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This week, we're going to go back in time a little. In the early 1870s, on the prairies of Kansas, travelers were going missing. The last stop seemed to be an inn along the Osage Trail. Authorities there soon found a den of death within that ramshackle building. This is the story of America's first serial killer family, the Bloody Benders. When I was researching the case, I found that a lot of information available wasn't concrete. There was a lot of rumor and conjecture. I mean, it could be the time period being the 1800s. It could also be the area. I mean, people were just beginning to move west, so record-keeping and newspapers in the area weren't as prominent. But having less actual fact made it a little bit creepier for me. It was like a campfire tale or a ghost story. And sometimes the less you know, the more your mind can wonder and create its own story and atmosphere. I also want to note that you'll hear the term Indian used in reference to Native American names or places. So I'm not being insensitive. It was the term used at the time, and sometimes it was unavoidable when it was used in quotes. After the Civil War, the U.S. government moved the Osage Indians from Labette County, Kansas, to new territory that would become Oklahoma. In the 1830s, the U.S. government promised the land to the Cherokee and four other tribes under what was called 
Indian removal. They were forcibly removed from their homelands to what was called Indian Territory. When the Cherokee arrived, they found that the land was occupied by the Osage, so many conflicts happened as a result. The Osage then ceded their lands, and in exchange they were given lands and supplies. They were first located to southeast Kansas, which later became Independence. And this newly vacant land became available to homesteaders, so any adult who had never taken up arms against the government could apply for the land. In October of 1875, families of spiritualists settled in the town of Osage. So this is seven miles from where the town of Cherryville would be established. So spiritualism was the belief that the dead could communicate with the living, often providing advice or knowledge and guidance. That movement became very popular in the 1800s and continued into the early 1900s. One of the families that had settled in this area was the Bender family. That consisted of Ma and Pa Bender, daughter Kate, and son John Jr. John Bender and his son traveled to the Osage Trail, and they met with a guy named M. Brockman at the Brockman Trading Post. So Brockman took them to see what claims were available on this treeless Kansas prairie. So John Bender, or Pa as he was known, chose 160 acres of land adjacent to the Great Osage Trail. The Osage Trail came from Fort Scott through Osage Mission via St. Paul, down the mounds to Cherryville, and then on to Independence, known most often as Osage Mission Fort Scott Road. It was the only road open for travel at that time for anybody traveling west. It was a very important passageway for those participating in the expansion of America. John Jr. chose land north of what Pa had chosen, but he didn't end up living there. Many people just thought he'd chosen the land to provide seclusion for the family, and you'll kind of find out why later on. And shortly after choosing the land, Ma Bender and daughter Kate came by train from Ottawa, and there they built a cabin. It was divided into two rooms with a wagon cover, and the smaller room in the back was used for living quarters for the four, and then the front room was used as a general store. Lone travelers frequented the inn, most coming from the east. You know, there they could get a hot meal and some rest. There was a sign hanging above the front door that read groceries. Many people would load up their wagons with supplies like liquor, tobacco, horse feed, black powder, and food. The front room contained a kitchen and a dining table directly in front of the room divider. And in the back of the inn, the women planted a two-acre vegetable garden and apple orchard. So let me go into a little bit of detail about the Benders so that you can get an idea of what this family was like. Many think that they might not have been an actual family, but rather four people who were just living together. They may have simply posed as a family to conform to the social norms of the time and not stand out. Some think the only real relation was between Ma and Kate being mother and daughter, possibly. The two children were sometimes rumored to be husband and wife rather than brother and sister. John Bender, or Pa, was about 60 years of age, and he originated from either Germany or the Netherlands, speaking very little English. His voice was described as guttural and very unintelligible. He had these piercing black eyes and very bushy eyebrows. 
Many people called him Old Beetlebrow John. He had long hair and a heavy beard. He had to have been an imposing figure over six feet tall. I like to kind of envision a crazier looking Kurt Russell. His true name is thought to have been John Flickinger. His wife, Elvira, was a heavyset woman, born Elmira Hill. She married a man named Simon Mark, or Meek, depending on your research, and together they had 12 children. And then she also married a man named William Stephen Griffith. In fact, she'd been married several times. And all of these husbands died of an apparent head wound, which were attributed to her. She was around 55 years old, and she spoke very little English. Ma Bender was described as very unfriendly. In fact, the neighbors called her She-Devil. She proclaimed to be a medium who could commune with the dead. She would boil things like herbs and roots and use them to cast spells and make charms. Kate Bender was thought to be Elvira's fifth daughter. She was born either Sarah Eliza Mark or Eliza Griffith, according to the source. When I heard that, I was pretty excited since my family name is Griffith. I mean, could I be related to Kate Bender? Kate was also known as Sarah Eliza Davis, and that'll come up later on in the podcast. Unlike her parents, Kate spoke English very well with only a slight accent. She was described as an attractive girl, petite with long auburn hair. Kate was a self-proclaimed healer and psychic. There were flyers that advertised her supernatural ability to speak with the dead. Being quite attractive, she was surely a draw for the men to the inn. She gave public seances under the name Professor Kate Bender. One flyer read, Professor Miss Kate Bender can heal disease, cure blindness, fits, and deafness. Residence 14 miles east of Independence on the road to Osage Mission, June 18, 1872. The last to round out the family was John Jr., and he was also considered attractive, about 25 years old with auburn hair and a mustache. And like Kate, he spoke fluent English with just a slight German accent. Unlike Pa, he laughed a lot. Some even called him a, quote, half-wit. At this time in history, many people were coming west to do things like search for gold or buy their own land or just see the part of the country that wasn't known. So lone men would travel ahead, much like the Bender men did, to find land for their families to settle on. Some of these traveling men had gone missing. In May of 1871, a body was discovered in Drum Creek. The man, known only as Jones, had his skull crushed and his throat slit. In February of 1872, two more bodies were found. And like Jones, they had their skulls crushed and throats slit. By 1873, reports of missing people were so common in the area that some began to void the trail altogether. In addition to the missing people, that area was known also for its horse thieves. But one disappearance would soon spark a manhunt. In the winter of 1872, George Newton Longcore and his little girl Mary Ann left Independence, Kansas to settle in Iowa. Longcore was likely headed towards the home of his parents in Lee County, Iowa. His infant son Robert and his 21-year-old wife Mary Jane had just died from pneumonia. The veteran of the Civil War and his little girl never made it to their destination. In 1873, after being missing for some time, 
a former neighbor of his, a guy named Dr. William Henry York, went searching for the man and the girl. Then York himself went missing. Having reached Fort Scott, he began a return journey, but he never arrived. Dr. York was from a very prominent family. He had two brothers, Colonel Ed York and Fort Scott, and Alexander M. York, who was a member of the Kansas State Senate. Together, the men organized and sent out a search party for their missing brother. Colonel York led a group of 50 men who questioned travelers on the trail. On March 28th of 1873, York arrived at the Bender's Inn. He was accompanied by a Mr. Johnson, who worked for his brother. York inquired as to whether they had seen his brother. The Benders actually admitted that Dr. York had stayed there, but they said they heard he had some trouble with the Native Americans in the area. The men just then stayed for dinner and left. On April 3rd, Colonel York returned to the inn, and this was after he heard a story about a woman who was threatened by Ma with knives at the cabin after Ma insisted the woman was a witch who cursed her coffee. She was, of course, insulted by the men's accusations that she might have something to do with any disappearances and insisted that they leave. Kay took Colonel York aside before they left. She offered to use her psychic abilities to find his lost brother if he would return to the inn alone later that night. Being the smart man that he was, he declined. The disappearances were of great talk in that area. Something needed to be done. The townspeople were going so far as to accuse the Osage community of the disappearances. A meeting was convened at the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse in the Osage Township. Seventy-five people attended this meeting, including Pa, John Jr., and Colonel York. It was decided at the meeting that a search warrant would be issued for every homestead between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek. Then three days after the meeting, a farmer named Billy Toll was driving a wagon past the Benner's Inn when he noticed that the animals out there seemed malnourished and looked abandoned. So he rushed to town and he urged the town trustee to investigate. But due to inclement weather, they had to wait. Several hundred men volunteered and formed a search party. And when they arrived at the inn, they did indeed find it abandoned, with all the possessions cleared out. One story says that Colonel York then saw a glimmer out of the corner of his eye. He picked up an object and he found that it was a locket belonging to his brother, and inside was a picture of his brother's wife and children. It's kind of far-fetched, but we don't know if this is true or not. Most disconcerting was the overwhelming bad omer that was emanating from the cabin. They traced the odor to a trap door, which was nailed shut underneath the bed. And below, they found a room, which was about six feet deep. That smell was coming from clotted blood that had soaked through the concrete into the soil. All the men went so far as to lift up the cabin to dig underneath it. However, no bodies were discovered. Convinced that there had to be bodies somewhere, they continued searching, and they probed the ground with metal rods every few feet. Eventually, they made it around to the vegetable garden, an apple orchard and back, which was planted by Ma and Kate. There, they found the body of Dr. York, buried face down in a shallow grave. The volunteers continued digging until midnight, finding nine more graves. 
Then, exhausted, they took up digging once again in the morning. This time, they found eight more graves. In the well on the property, they found another body and various body parts. All but one of the bodies had their heads smashed in with what looked like a hammer and had their throats cut. And they also found the body of a young girl. She was strangled and buried alive. By including the body parts not matched to the found bodies, it's speculated that there were possibly 20 victims. A search of the cabin produced three hammers, a shoe hammer, a claw hammer, and a sledgehammer. And these all matched indentations on some of the skulls. It was quickly determined how this seemingly innocent inn was actually used as a killing ground. So what happened was the host would give their guest a seat of honor at the table. And this seat was over a trap door, which led down to the secret room in the cellar. Kate most likely would distract the guest. Then John Jr. or John Sr. would come up from behind the curtain in the back room and hit the traveler in the head with a hammer. Their throat was then cut by one of the women just to ensure the victim perished. The body was then dropped through the trap door where it was stripped and buried. It's believed the family killed for whatever money or treasures the travelers had on them, and some speculated that they killed for just the sheer thrill of it. In the end, the Benders probably got away with thousands of dollars from their various victims. There are some testimonies from supposed guests who did get away. William Pickering said he refused to sit near the cloth due to his disgust at the stains on it, and he fled the inn after being threatened with Kate with a knife. A Catholic priest said he saw one of the men concealing a large hammer, and he also fled the scene. Two men who came to experience Kate's psychic abilities also refused to sit near the stained cloth, much like previous guest William Pickering. According to them, Kate became rather abusive, and shortly after, the men emerged from behind the curtain. They became very uneasy, and they quickly left without finding out any of their fortunes from Kate. There were bullet holes found in the roof, possibly due to victims attempting to fight back. Among the victims, Van Brown from Kansas. He was missing $2,600, which in today's standards would be around $46,000. Henry McKenzie from Independence was missing $36, and also a team of horses. Another victim was Jack Bogart whose horse was purchased from a friend of the Benders after he went missing in 1872. W.F. McRoddy of Cedarville was contesting a case before the land office in Independence. He most likely stopped for a spell at the end. A man named D. Brown was recognized by a ring he wore and had shown to a friend named Johnson. An onlooker at the scene of the discovery of the bodies was the neighbor M. Brockman, who had originally shown the land to the Bender men. And the crowd was so incensed with that man that they hung him from a beam. They revived him and then interrogated him, only to hang him again. He was eventually released after the third hanging, when it was determined that he didn't know anything about the killings or the family's whereabouts. Inside the end was found a Roman Catholic prayer book with notes written in German. Inside it said it belonged to a Jonah Bender, born July 30, 1848. Also inscribed was John Gebhardt came to America on July 18th, 
And then it said, Big Slaughter Day, January 8th, Hell Departed. 3,000 people visited the site of the killing, some as far away as New York City or Chicago. The inn was actually destroyed by souvenir hunters clamoring for a piece of the deadly inn. Of course, rewards were posted for the arrest and capture of the benders. Senator York, Dr. York's brother, posted a $1,000 reward for their arrest, and Kansas Governor Thomas A. Osborne posted $2,000 for the capture of all. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. After their disappearance, no one is quite sure what became of the benders. Detectives found an abandoned wagon with a team of starving horses outside the town of Thayer, which was about 12 miles north of the inn. From there, it's thought that Kate and John Jr. bought train tickets for Humboldt at the Leavenworth, Lawrence, and Galveston Railroad. Then they left by train at Chanute and caught the MK and T train to the terminus in Red River County. This then went to an outlaw county in the border region between Texas and New Mexico. A detective found a man he thought to be John Bender Jr., who had died from bleeding of the internal organs. Ma and Pa Bender were thought to have gone to Kansas City, and from there they bought train tickets to St. Louis. But there are so many different accounts of what became of the Benders. One vigilante group claims they shot all but Kate, who they then burned alive. But there was another group that said they lynched the whole family and threw the bodies into the river. And then there was another rumor that went around that the family all perished in a gunfight. However, no one came forward to claim any kind of reward. In 1884, a John Flickinger reportedly committed suicide in Lake Michigan. John Flickinger was thought to be Pa's actual name. In that same year, a man thought to be Pa was arrested for murder in Montana near Salmon, Indiana. In a bitter irony, the victim died from a hammer blow to the head. The suspect severed his own foot in an attempt to escape his leg irons, thus bleeding to death. The body was badly decomposed before it could be looked at 
by anyone from Cherryville to see if it was actually Paw. And that skull is still on display today in the Salmon Saloon. In 1889, a Mrs. Elmira Monroe, or Griffith by other accounts, and a Mrs. Sarah Eliza Davis, we mentioned that name before, was arrested in Niles, Michigan for larceny. The two women were released, but then they were rearrested for the murders that had taken place at the Bender Inn. Mrs. Frances McCain, a daughter of one of the Bender victims, had tracked the pair down and reported their whereabouts to the police. She claims to have seen her father's murder in a dream. Two Osage town witnesses confirmed the identification of the women as the Benders via a tintype photograph. This had to be one of the earliest lineups. Deputy Sheriff Leroy Dick, who headed the search party of the Bender property, came all the way to Michigan and arrested the pair on October 30th. Monroe declared that she wouldn't be taken alive. However, she went willingly when the time came. Davis said that that was indeed Ma, but claimed that she wasn't Kate, but Kate's sister Sarah. Angered by the betrayal, Monroe accused Sarah of actually being Kate. The women were taken to Oswego, Kansas, where seven members of a 13-member panel confirmed their identity and then set a trial. Mary Gardell came forward saying that she was a daughter of Monroe. She said her mother was named Elmira Shearer and had been serving two years for manslaughter of her daughter-in-law, Emily, in the Detroit House of Corrections. Monroe, of course, denied being Shearer as well as being Ma Bender. The trial was set and held in May. Monroe now said she was in fact Shearer, her defense being she couldn't have committed the murders due to the incarceration in Detroit. An attorney produced a marriage certificate for Davis from the state of Michigan, the charge being that she could also not have been participating in the murders. The evidence against the women was so circumstantial that it didn't hold up in court. Judge Calvin discharged the women, and it was rumored from the county that they didn't want the expense of boarding the two women for a future investigation. In 1912, a woman by the name of Mrs. W. Peters confessed to a general, John Collins, that she was Kate Bender. She was living alone in a dilapidated house in Rio Vista, California. She told the general that she helped lure men to the end to be slaughtered. After the crimes were discovered, she said she fled to Chicago and then went to San Francisco. There, she says she worked as a nurse and married a guy named Captain John Gavin, who was a whaler, an Arctic sealer. They separated, and she returned to using the name Peters, which she said was her maiden name. In Rio Vista, she ran a roadhouse, but confessed after becoming ill. The woman would have been the same approximate age of Kate had she lived. She was dead for several days before her body was discovered, so it's almost a fitting end to someone who left corpses to rot in shallow graves herself. For me, the most exciting rumor about the Bender family has to be the Laura Ingalls Wilder connection. If you don't know, she was the author of Little House on the Prairie book series, which were based on her childhood and a pioneer family. And she was born in Wisconsin to Charles and Caroline Ingalls. They had five children. When she was two, they moved and settled in Kansas near Independence. 
Her father was told the land was open to white settlers, but it was actually on the Osage Reservation. They heard the settlers would soon be evicted, so they moved back to Wisconsin. The books were the basis for a hit TV show in the 70s starring Melissa Gilbert and Michael Landon. I think I've seen every episode of that show. It was a huge staple of my Sunday nights growing up. And like many young girls, I read and reread the books and loved them. The tales and hardships of the Ingalls family were loved by many. In 1937, Laura Ingalls Wilder gave a speech at a book fair. This was later transcribed and printed in a 1978 edition of the Saturday Evening Post and then in a 1988 book called Little House Sampler. But according to Wilder, quote, Every story in this novel, all the circumstances, every incident are true. All I have told is true, but is not the whole truth. There were some stories I wanted to tell, but would not be responsible for putting in a book for children, even though I knew them as a child. Wilder goes on to say, There was a story of the Bender family that belonged in the third volume, Little House on the Prairie. The Benders lived halfway between it and Independence, Kansas. We stopped there on our way to the Little House, while Pa watered the horses and brought us all a drink from the well near the house. I saw Kate Bender standing in the doorway. We did not go in because we could not afford to stop at the tavern. Pa supposedly stopped there again on his way to Independence to sell furs, but once again didn't go in for lack of money. And she went on with the tale. Then it was noticed that the Bender's garden was always freshly plowed, but never planted. People wondered. And then a man came from the east looking for his brother who was missing. He made up a party in Independence, and they followed the road south. But when they came to the Bender place, there was no one there. There were signs of hurried departure, and they searched the place. The front room was divided by a calico curtain, against which the dining table stood. On the curtain back of the table were stains as high as the head of a man when seated. Behind the curtain was a trap door in the floor, and beside it lay a heavy hammer. In the cellar, underneath the body of a man whose head had been crushed by the hammer, it appeared that he'd been seated at the table, back to the curtain, and had been struck from behind it. A grave was partly dug in the garden with a shovel close by. The posse searched the garden and dug up human bones and bodies. One body was that of a little girl who'd been buried alive with her murdered parents. The garden was truly a graveyard, kept plowed so it would show no signs. The night of the day the bodies were found, a neighbor rode up to our house and talked very earnestly with Pa. Pa took his rifle down from its place over the door, and he said to Ma, The vigilantes are called out. Then he saddled a horse, and he rode away with the neighbor. It was late the next day when he came back, and he never told us where he'd been. For several years, there was more or less a hunt for the benders, and there were reports they had been seen here or there. At such times, Pa always said in a strange tone of finality, They will never be found. They were never found, and later I formed my own conclusions why. You will agree... It will not fit a story for a children's book, but it shows there are other dangers on the frontiers besides wild Indians. 
So what happened? Did Charles Ingalls participate in a vigilante killing of the Bender family? I mean, it kind of sounds like it. Did this mild-mannered father do what was necessary to protect his family and many others? So many dispute this timeline, saying the Ingalls family would not have been in the area at the same time as the Benders. Others think that she might have just overheard parts of the story from her parents and then reconstructed a story in her mind about Pa's involvement. The Benders were found out in 1873, which would have been two years after the Ingalls family left Kansas. For an interesting comparison of facts, check out Maggie Koth Baker's article on the web. She's a Little House fan, and she goes point by point with the discrepancies. It was a very interesting read. The fascination with the Bender family continued years later. In 1961, in Cherryville, an exact replica of the inn was created for the Kansas State Centennial Celebration. Over 2,000 people came in the first three days to see the exhibit. It was so popular, the replica stayed up until 1978. Some townspeople objected to the display, saying the story of the Benders tarnished the reputation of the area. Others continued to be fascinated with the violent family. Cherryville even had an event called Bender Days for several years. And of course, many books have been written about the bloody benders. I think surely they had to be part of the inspiration behind the murderous family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Especially that scene where Grandpa is hitting the girl in the head with a hammer. There was also a movie film this past year called Bender, starring Bruce Davidson and Linda Pearl. I watched the preview and it looks pretty promising. It's definitely a case where, as Mark Twain said, truth is stranger than fiction. But it also leaves so many unanswered questions. I mean, how did these people find each other in the first place if they weren't really a family? Who was the first one to kill out of the four? And what truly became of all of them? I would love to hear what anyone thinks about this case. And the whole element of the Ingalls family makes it even more interesting for me. I'd heard about the Benders long ago, but I'd only recently heard the Laura Ingalls Wilder part. Do you think this actually happened? I mean, what a fantastic episode of Little House on a Prairie that would have made. It's pretty rare for more than one person to work in conjunction with others in killing. I don't know. Like many stories from history, we'll never know the exact details. We can only speculate on what might have happened. There are other tales of murderous families out there, like the Scottish cannibal clan of Sonny Beans and the Revolutionary War killer brothers Micah and Wiley Harp. But I think most of us can't even imagine killing with their families. The details of the Benders are probably scarce because they kept to themselves due to their nefarious way of life. Usually most details are revealed after the killers are caught. I mean, we'll never know exactly how many people met their fate at the hands of the Benders. So that was the tale of the Bloody Benders, America's first serial killer family. I bet you'll never look at Little House on the Prairie the same way. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I'm always up for suggestions for the podcast. And I want to thank everybody who's reached out this week and given me some. If there's something you'd find interesting and you'd like to hear covered, find me on Red Rum Blonde, the Facebook page. Or you can tweet me at Blonde Red Rum on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. 
I'm always trying to keep these pages updated with true crime happenings and stories I find of interest on the web. I really appreciate the listens. And if you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next week.